Welcome, everybody, to episode 115 of the Metabolist 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And David. And this very day, we are going to be talking about <laughs> Ghost Light. Indeed, which was the last classic last story yes. to be ever recorded. Yes, yes. The last ever seen were some... Two Victorian ladies being turned to stone. Mm -hmm. The last ever seen ever recorded in Doctor Who. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Mm. Indeed, indeed. Yes. And this anyway. is uh, Alan Waring's second directorial effort of Doctor Who. Right off the greatest show in the galaxy, he goes on to direct Ghostlight. Yeah, directing, directing the Ghostlight. But this was actually, well, actually it's the third because uh, he did Fenric too, so that was recorded beforehand. Of course, of course, of so course. So this is um, a culmination of all his Doctor Who knowledge and efforts to tell, <laughs> to tell a story that is complex but yet easy to easy to follow and understand <laughs> yes all, all, all of those things um i you know it's funny because i know quite a lot about ghost light now mm -hmm. it's actually reasonably easy to follow and understand it is. um i was trying to cast my mind back to what it must have been like to encounter this cold and I think it would have been quite confusing, to be honest. I mean, I only ever saw the last episode of this. Hmm. And I can remember at the time going like, what is this? Um, uh, which well, I didn't see the first two, so it like, serves me right, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's not one that you just pick up cold and go, no. okay, we're in. No, no, no. no. Uh, I have really vague recollection of watching this in 1989. Yeah. And I remember being bored out of my gourd it was oh. not exciting and not an exciting story for me at all back in uh first viewing uh in subsequent viewings i've grown rather fond of Ghostlight in many many ways yeah it does grow on you i mean it does it, it is confusing and um it's not so much confusion that i think alienated me originally it's just it seems like nothing is happening in the story and by hmm. and by the time that light shows up at the end of uh end of episode two beginning of part three my mind was wandering and I think I was channel surfing at that point. So it just, there's not enough there that really engaged me. There is a very similar tone throughout. Um, there's not a, there's not a lot of kind of beats, uh, a difference mm -hmm. between each scene. Uh, it's all takes place inside and it's very obviously a set. Right. And all the characters are all sort of the same and they're all kind of yelling at each other. Or not, um, except for my favorite, my favorite Nimrod, the I was Neanderthal. Just about to say, yeah. my favorite is Nimrod as well. You know, in a in the in an ideal alternative world, world he would have become a companion. Ooh, I think that would have been a good pairing for one or two episodes. He was awesome. He's like D eighty four, but less um, less obviously a robot. So there, <laughs> therefore, could could pass in polite company. I would love to have seen him. Uh, basically, the doctor just trying to get him back to the Stone Age. Yeah, it's like it's London 1964, only it's London 10,000 Yes. Something like that, yeah. Something like that, whatever, yeah. Yeah, it, I don't think he would play out very well as a long-term companion. You'd have to basically smarten him up and it'd be another Jamie McCrimmon type character. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
He's brilliant. But I think for this episode, then maybe one other episode, and then finally get him back to the people, yeah. to his people. Because he's kind of abandoned in Gabriel Chase, right? He's kind of abandoned in Victorian era. Well, he's one of the crew, right? He's one of the crew oh, of the spaceship. Yes, he does. I, I beg his. Yes, they're off. They're off in space. Him yeah. and uh, Redvers, Fen, Fen Cooper, and Control, and uh, uh, the Survey. I guess uh, Josiah Smith. Yeah, but Josiah Smith's all like being kind of cowed in some way. Yeah. Yes. Um. So they, have they never come back then? Have Big Finish not done the mm. further adventures of Nimrod Control? Mm. <laughs> I don't um, know. And all the other people that are on that spaceship. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Yeah, the husks. Yeah. They, they, husks. They, it's a Holmesian double act, the two husks. <laughs> the two husks. Husk one and husk now, two. Now, that reptilian husk really... Was that Omega's costume reused? Yeah, I I was I I had the infotext on, but they and I was expect, fully expecting them to say, and that was Omega's head, mm-hmm. but they didn't. So maybe it wasn't, but it sure no, looked like it. Sure looked like Omega from Arc of Infinity to me. Yeah, just spray like painted Omega green head. a little bit. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, paint the Omega head. The one thing that really stood out for me this time around was Control, because having wandered away in 1989 by Episode Three, Control really wasn't that uh big of a presence she was more of a menace of this uh that josiah was building her up as to be this uh abomination and right. so i had no recollection and i have and i have seen this since 1989 previously but i had no recollection that control was uh was a wannabe victorian lady yeah yeah uh, yes uh again i only i only ever really saw the last episode mm-hmm. um on watching but um yeah, and there's the whole, well, I mean, the whole Ace thing is like an Eliza Doolittle. I mean, I guess the Doctor who is kind of obsessed with Eliza Doolittle because mm-hmm. that's what Leela was supposed to be as yeah. well. So Ace is supposed to be that as well. And now Control is that too. So we all love Pygmalion. Yeah, I think that's something that the writers of Doctor Who kind of gravitate to, especially especially yes. in the Ace years, because Ace is on assignment at the very beginning of the story where the doctor sends her alone outside the TARDIS to kind of get the lay of the land and make an assessment to right. to, to survey the room and decide if they're dangerous, where they are. And this harkens to the whole Cartmel Master plan of training Ace to be a Time Lord. Yeah, I guess that's what she's doing, though. It's not really... That doesn't really come across super, super clearly because it's just a room. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that would have been more obvious if it had been more, you know more a more obviously dangerous environment i think it would have been a better too if she had to go out in the corridors and kind of get a, a sense of where they are and then report back yeah, rather than being this or something yeah or or if she had made it down to the basement first yeah. then reported back and then sort of like okay and more processing like that but then again this is the first assignment so perhaps you don't want to throw her into the fire yeah, yeah, yeah. It is it is interesting that we have an old Victorian house which actually is an old Victorian house or actually actually it's a new Victorian house because it's Victorian. Mm-hmm. All the way through I'm just reminded of the endless parade of both in old mm-hmm. both in classic who and new who old Victorian houses that our heroes find themselves in. The silhouette of the house kind of reminded me of the Morbius uh, Brain of Morbius castle. Oh, it was reminding me of Wester Drumlins. Hmm. What is that? Uh, that's where the weeping angels first manifest themselves. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was also reminding me of the boarding house, which, um, <laughs> you know, what's his name? Uh, Hercule Poirot is um, 
presiding over. Really? Oh, you know, with uh, Bill and um, no, uh, that's a that's a that's a sky. It's not. It's a several story building, multi story building skyscraper. No, 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 no. Is it the yeah. one? With, the one with the one with uh, uh, you know, David Suchet. It? David Suchet. Yeah. 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 Really? Yeah. I no. thought that was like a modern apartment complex. No. It yeah. Wasn't, it was an old house. No. 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 Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sidebar. Oh, we gotta find. Contra. We gotta find. Okay, this to the here. internet. To the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was an old. It was an old. Am I just? Am I dreaming? I'm. I'm dreaming. I'm not dreaming. Okay. All right. It's an old house. No. Look, I've got pictures of it here on the internet. It's oldish. It's not a modern house. Look, it's got. It's got gates, and there's uh, there's all there's all vines on the gates and stuff. Yeah. Maybe they move locations because the ones I remember they were in this like this big yellow office apartment living no complex. not knock knock okay the episode is series 10 episode oh four, knock, oh, knock. oh oh okay you're not talking about Ercu perot with miss lemon and you're talking about knock knock the, the... i'm talking about knock knock with david oh Suchet. okay yeah uh, what you're it, not talking uh, about poirot with uh no Suchet. i'm just saying i'm just saying Hercule um, poirot because i couldn't remember the guy's name i stand corrected all right well, well i was frankly amazed david that you were you were misremembering because you are like um oh a big fan like... of knock knock you're like you're like the stato of knock knock. You know you know everything about that one. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, yes. Yeah, so it was reminding. Okay, we're me of, talking uh, about Doctor Who, not. We are talking about Doctor Who. Okay. Yeah, um, right. and we yes, it's not it's not Urquhart's <laughs> house. No no no. In, okay. Because that's all modern and stuff. It's, right, no no. Right. I'm, yeah, 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 I was yeah. reminding me of, of David Suchet's special house in Knock Knock. Mm-hmm. You can cut all that out. <laughs> no, it's a, that's, <laughs> that's it gold. That's podcasting gold. Podcast gold. It's the reason why people listen. This is why our three new listeners are listening after uh, our new to who. <laughs> oh, they're, they're aching sides exactly. Um, so yeah, where so were it was we? reminding me. It was reminding me of that house. Um, mm-hmm. I would have liked, you know, obviously they have to, you know, oh, do they? Maybe they don't. Um, I would have liked some outside activity because it was like it was mm-hmm. very, very studio bound. I wonder if it was reminding you of the knock knock house because of the insects coming alive and coming oh, out of yes. the woodwork. It probably was. Yes, with the with the with the cockroaches and things. Yeah. 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 Why did those insects come alive again? I think it was a uh, surge of energy from light. From light, up. light, light's yeah. energy. Yes, yeah. The, the one bit that they really don't explain is the radiation. It, that's a big MacGuffin at the beginning with the snuff box being radioactive, and then uh, Redvers being all being, frightened of it. Well, being frightened of it, but being radioactive too. It's it's sort of like with Battlefield with the scabbard. That yeah. they set this up to be what? Yeah. Who cares if it's radioactive? Because they do nothing with it. Yeah. Is light supposed to be radioactive? Is it just an know. excuse for the doctor to have a a, a Geiger counter? You're asking the wrong person. Okay. I haven't got a clue. Um, right. I, and I think I think this does suffer from kind of starting halfway through a story, but not in a good way. Mm. Um, I found my I keep finding myself trying to work out who Josiah is. He's survey. Yeah, and how he got hold of Fen Cooper, and what the servants are that only come out at night, and why they all why they live behind those sliding doors. All right, so answer me those <laughs> questions. Okay, so my interpretation, okay, interpretation my understanding yeah. is that Josiah Smith is the survey to which uh, control, he, survey, and light. There's three right, things on so the spaceship. 
Light is the scientist or the uh, the one running the experiment. Yeah. And he sends Survey out into the world, into Earth. Right. And Survey can evolve and adapt based off of the life life forms around it. Right, 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 right. Control right. is control, so it it isn't allowed the opportunity to, to evolve to, and to adapt evolve. Yep, and, yep, yep. and so he so he light can compare survey to the control right right surely surely uh, so the husks the previous husks were supposedly earlier forms of josiah smith right right now why does he turn why why does he become all evil though that i don't understand where he gets the idea how does how do you get from this evolving uh, creature, I survey guess, survey organism, to, yeah. sur- survey organism, to uh, wanting to assassinate Queen Victoria? That to me is a layer that really doesn't need to be in the story. Maybe no, I've I've always felt that that just comes out of the left field in the third episode, and you go like, what? It's become mm-hmm. all it's become all steampunk all of a sudden, and people are assassinating Queen Victoria. And I mean, I guess if you're an alien survey organism of some kind you may believe that if you assassinate queen victoria then you will then become king um doesn't really work <laughs> like that the son of queen victoria will become king if yes. you assassinate queen victoria you don't get to be king just because you've assassinated her. it's it's That's not, not the roman the, empire it's not the game of thrones it's not game of thrones <laughs> exactly exactly so yeah. hang on so, okay so my third my second question where does red of us uh, Fen Cooper come from? So my thought is that he was a visitor or a house guest in Gabriel Chase before right. uh, Josiah Smith got rid of the ori- original Gabriel inhabitants. Chase. Yeah, right. And he, I guess, chloroforms. Uh, yes. The, the original. <coughs> oh, sounds Excuse like me. you're suffering for a little bit of the old chloroform yourself. Then I am. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's my guess is that somehow he went to the house and was a visitor and has been had has some kind of psychological trauma probably seeing light or the husk or something but his he's off his rocker he's definitely off his rocker Uh, okay all right my third question why do the servants that only come out at night live behind sliding doors i think they're very similar to the inspector uh the police inspector Uh. that um, they're they're toys of light, or, or uh, light or hasn't woken up, or yes. of survey. But uh, I think ultimately they're toys of light because, okay. but light hasn't woken up. Survey has uh, uh, evolved above his purpose and right. is trying to take control. Right, and so similarly, so Frank Windsor, Inspector McKenzie, he's uh, he came to the house one day, mm-hmm. inquiring about a crime or something that may have happened, um, and they tra- they trapped him. Right. Um, and they kept him in a draw. Just like Reverend Matthews, too. Yeah. And then they wake him up in order to dissolve him into soup. Yeah. That just yeah. seemed kind of pointless again, too. That uh, it almost becomes like a, 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 I wouldn't say a comedy of manners, but a comedy of stereotypes yes. where you have the the Victorian explorer, you have the Victorian police detective, you right, have the Victorian right. Church of England reverend. Right. He who is that's he's a great character actually. I, 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 my second favorite character is the Reverend Ernest Matthews, played by uh, Mr. John Nettleton. Mr. John Nettleton of um of um dum, dum, uh, yes minister. Yes. Fame. Mm-hmm. Again, having paid better attention to my uh, info text. 
This was originally going to be Lung Barrow, wasn't it? That's how Mark Platt caught uh, Cartmill's attention was with yeah, Lung Barrow. Yeah. And this is kind of the fallout from Lung Barrow. Yeah. So again, I mean, a lot of these kind of random kind of country house murder mystery kind of cliche characters, which in a kind of pseudo realistic setting, you kind of go, how, how did they get there? Mm-hmm. In a kind of a Lung Barrow setting, which is what I think was, you know, more of a kind of, you know, Agatha Christie murder mystery uh, setting, but, you know, on a kind of ridiculously abstracted alien planet, you wouldn't mm-hmm. question so much. You know, it, it always reminds me of Black Orchid, you know, and it also <laughs> reminds me of the Agatha Christie one with the wasp, uh, the, the unicorn and the wasp. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. but there's not enough for me explanation of, of where, who everybody is and how they got there. I mean, I can certainly understand that they're there and that they're doing things. But I'd like just a little bit more of... A little bit more backstory. A little more backstory and a little more outsideness. It is super inside. I mean, Mm -hmm. just having a carriage draw up to the house and John Nettleton jump out of it would have been... Just would have helped me kind of... Because it's... uh, There's not enough differentiation for me between the spaceship in the basement and the house that's above the spaceship. They both seem to be spaceships floating in a kind of a void which i think is why the the whole now i'm going to assassinate queen victoria thing becomes like way hey um right where did that come from everybody can make anything up because there's really kind of nothing nothing is true and everything is permitted Mm -hmm. um aspect to this to the story yeah well again if you see this as a collection and maybe survey collected these pieces Okay. All right. It does sort of fit. Yeah, that fits. All right. But it's more like a Venus flytrap where the mansion is there and the inspector's there to investigate the disappearance of the Lord of the Manor. And right. It does seem a bit of a twist, though, that uh, Josiah Smith has ingratiated himself to the point where uh, Gwendolyn thinks yeah. of him as her uncle. And. Uh, She's his very willing agent to carry out the chloroforming and collecting. And uh, she's really in whole hog, I guess, with this. Yeah, in in whole hog with Ian Hogg, (laughs) the the actor. Um, I guess one, you know, if if we're trying to extrapolate the story here, I mean, one might imagine that Survey, one of Survey's... You know, I, I guess he's a kind of quasi-organic machines or something, but one of his kind of programs is that you know he's able to ingratiate himself really well mm-hmm. into whatever setting the survey ship, light ship, kind of mm-hmm. lands on. So you know that maybe explain why he's so he, he's so he's able to you know entrap people and convince people um, to you know live behind doors and be chloroformed and live in a cabinet for a bit. You know, a trick that I think they missed here is they could yeah. have had a Silurian in one of the cabinets because yeah. he's survey light has been there at least since the dinosaur age. Or yeah, because uh, he, awesome. he, he uh, name checks Ichthyosaurus, right? And he's picked up Nimrod along the way. But is this is light ship a time ship that he goes periodically, or did he come come way back in like the Mesozoic or some other? age when there was a you know age of dinosaurs and they've stayed there and then the mansion gets built a, uh, upon Around it them? I, yeah i'm not that, sure that, that's unsure one's assumption here is this is something that light has done before 
Hmm. That he goes around the universe cataloging planets. Yeah. yeah. So why is Earth the only planet that has so much evolution on it that it gets him all confused <laughs> and worried? I would assume that, you know, evolution is a cosmic constant mm-hmm. of some kind. If you go to another planet, like planet of the Mingmongs, um, you know, the, the Mingmongs are, are also evolving at great speed and mm-hmm. they're confusing people with their level of evolution. So I think then by, by uh, what one then arrives at at that point is that maybe this is the first mission that light has gone on for his people mm-hmm. if he has a people i don't know it seems weird that this would be the one that freaks him out because i'm surely all planets are like this i give a little different explanation i think uh. it's mainly a misreading or a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation on platt's part and cartmill's part on evolution <laughs> because josiah smith wouldn't be evolving from insect husk to a reptile husk to a pre-victorian husk to a full full blown victorian husk husk i mean that's not evolution it's more of a metamorphosis it's that you could see it being a kafkaesque like uh, turning into a cockroach or from a cockroach into a victorian Uh and it seems to be a little bit of a mishmash of uh ideas here rather than a full exploration of evolution. And it does try to play on the uh, stereotypical view of evolution. We're uh, ascended from apes and monkeys that they uh, kind of have a regression. Not that you have evolutionary regressions, but with uh, Reverend Matthews. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's both, it's having kind of having its cake and eating it. It's both saying, like, Reverend Matthews is an idiot for thinking that we're descended directly from monkeys. Right. But then it descends him back to a monkey. So um, I guess maybe that's kind of poetic justice. But it's, mm-hmm. re- as I said, it's both saying that that's not true, but also it is true. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But, I mean, it's nice. I like it. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. to take, yeah, to take your point, that this could be Light's first assignment. I think he's a trainee cataloger for <laughs> from from the planet the planet of the light of the light people, and yeah, he's the first one he's gone on, and he's got them all got them all confused. He didn't uh, he didn't read the manual. What do you think of John Hallam as light? Well, I didn't know until I'd read my info text that he's <laughs> in the Wicker Man. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. He's um he's the he's the irritating policeman who's kind of mocking Sergeant Howie in the quite hard to see mm-hmm. at least used to be quite hard to see long version of the wicker man so it's the mm-hmm. kind of the pre-credit sequence of the wicker man he's also in the charge of the light brigade oh he really? as, a, as one of the bit officers you know kind oh, of okay. walking officers he was oh. on carry on up the kyber as oh, yeah uh, i read of, that on one on of the, the tribesmen yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. i mean he, yeah, i think he was in flash gordon earlier oh, in the 80s excellent so he's had a pretty he's story around a career. bit yeah i mean but yeah. yeah he only appears i think in the director's cut of the wicker man though i don't think he was in a theatrical version where although yeah i mean i mean that's what i mean he's in the he's it's the it's the pre-credit sequence of yeah the wicker man yeah, okay um yeah i'm i'm a wicker man expert so i'm <laughs> i'm well aware of that no it's the reassembled director's cut so if you if you mm-hmm. want to see hallam in the wicker man get yourself the director's cut but it's really kind of it's not very the film stock is 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 pretty pretty scratched up at that point so um you'll have to squint um if you want to recognize him properly 
I think his probably his main role in television was from EastEnders, is from what I understand. He was a someone in a prison or something like that. But he's main, <laughs> mainly a stage and film actor yeah. rather than television. Um, now looking at Wikipedia, I see oh. that he was Malin in The Malin Streak. It was Thomas Malin. Okay, not um, familiar from, with that at all. From 1979. <laughs> That's exciting. Um, I think he's a bit miscast. Really? You yeah, don't like do. this little bit of fey no. acting? and no. No, hmm, I don't. Okay. I, 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 he, he, he looks like a big bloke. He is wearing a cl- wearing a cape that's all gold. <laughs> Choir robes, and he's doing alternately a high squeaky voice and a low rumbly voice. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced. I, again, reading my info text, I understand that Mark Platt, unsurprisingly, um, at this point, was obsessed with uh, uh, William Blake. Um, and had wanted Light to be that kind of Blakeian, uh, you know, figure that was kind of emerging from the light. Mm-hmm. And it also wanted Control to be like the ghost of a flea, so the kind of little kind of skinned creature. Mm. Um, and I can see where they're going with that, but I, I, I would have liked something more... I would have liked something more different, to be honest. I think... Um, Everything looks too Victorian, um, and I guess everyone's evolving to be Victorian, so that right. makes sense. But I think it would have been sensible design-wise to, in my opinion, to kind of call out light as being definitely something from space. Otherworldly. Rather from someone wearing a cape sprayed gold. I liked Hallam's portrayal, but the, the mm. whole concept of light to me seemed a little bit Star Trek Next Generation type right. he's alien. Was like a Q of some kind? Kind of, or just an alien that can zip and zap all over he wants, just has this curiosity, kills to explore, can travel at the speed of thought. It just, we got one of these hyper-powerful beings, and ultimately he kills himself by trying to petrify himself so he doesn't change, which then that again ties in with this kind of weird reading of evolution where changing changing one's mind is considered to be evolution and evidence of evolution and and that uh, that the doctor is trying to use this logic on light that he is in himself changing that it doesn't it doesn't seem to encounter um fit for purpose or uh s- several generations of taking best attributes of <laughs> of, uh, of genetic code or anything like that. Yeah, well, it's it's the Reverend, you know, uh, what's his name? Matthews. It's the Reverend Matthews' view of evolution yes. is what it yes. is. Yes, yes, um, Which is ironic because, again, we, we, we roundly mock the Reverend Matthews for having that view of evolution, but that seems to be how Mark Platt is, is understanding evolution, that any kind of change you make is yeah. some kind of evolution, which mm-hmm. I guess it is maybe, but certainly not the scientific right. definition of evolution right. as I understand it. Right. And well, neither of us are scientists, but I think we have... Uh... Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, I'm actually not a scientist either. <laughs> it seems to deal with more of the stereotypes rather than the actual science, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to sidebar quickly. Okay. Um, I, I have John Francis... Ron William Francis Hallam's Wikipedia page in front of me. He was in Life Force. Um, Not ringing a bell. (laughs) Which, honestly, if you haven't seen Life Force, Life Force is like an episode of Doctor Who if it had a lot of money being spent on it and was allowed full frontal nudity. 
Um, <laughs> it is an absolute great film directed by Tobe Hooper from 1985. Um, I do recommend it. It is just stupid in every way. And um, as I said, it's like it's like a sexy, expensive version of Doctor Who. Um, and I very much recommend it. So if you want to see full frontal John Hallam, Life Force is where to go. Uh, well, it's 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 the ladies. It's the ladies who get to be full frontal in Life Force. I'm, I think John, as far as I remember, I think I think he's a, I think he's a policeman again, actually. Um, in the pre-credit well, sequence. Well, the other cool thing about Life Force is that it's got um, um, it's got Stevens. Stevens is in it. Stevens. Ah, okay, from uh, Green Death. Yeah, from Green Death. Yeah, he's the chief surgeon who tries to bring the vampires from space back to life again. Oh, Life Force is a horror film then. Yeah, what's their vampires from space? They're naked vampires from space. <laughs> Sexy lady naked vampires from space. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. Jerome Willis is in Jerome Willis okay. is the surgeon. Okay. And I think he gets I think he I don't know, he gets husked, I think, quite quickly. Oh, husk. Um, There's a tie-in. <laughs> yeah, you go. So anyway, I'm just I'm just recommending Life Force to anybody because it's 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 well worth well worth a watch. <laughs> All right, back to uh, back to Ghostlight. Mm-hmm. Why is it called Ghostlight? Uh, writer's prerogative. Yeah, you you have ghost and you have light, so <gasps> there you go. Um, apparently, a ghost light is the light you leave on in the theater when everyone's gone home. Well, good name. It's a good name. It's a good name. It's it it suits it suits the suits the story very well, in my opinion. It's a very Moffat-esque type name where it really doesn't tie into the story per se, but it's uh, more characteristic of the theme or idea that the writer yeah. wants to convey. Doctor Who hyphen Ghostlight, mm-hmm. exactly. The whole thing feels very Moffaty to me. Mm. Um, I mean, maybe it's just because I was thinking of, um, uh, you know, Wester Drumlin's and David Sush's Knock Knock mm-hmm. Boarding House, um, but it was it feels Moffaty. It feels very Moffaty. I think Moffat would tie it together a little better. I think there's enough yeah, loose ends. Uh, well, he's been writing Doctor Who for longer, far longer yeah, than yeah, yeah, yeah. Pratt had been doing at this point. Yes, I'm mm-hmm. sure. I'm sure Pratt would tie it together much better mm-hmm. if he were to write it nowadays. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, the one thing I really picked up on is how mm. much the Doctor manhandles Ace in this story. He's, he's physically moving her around and shushing her and. He's literally shoving Ace around to get her to stop interrupting, interceding, trying to stand <laughs> up for herself. It's kind of awkward or not painfully bad to watch. Again, reading my info text, apparently there wasn't a lot of rehearsal time and the cast didn't know the set very well. So he could have been steering her around because she's missing her marks and stuff, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I mean, given that Ace is the ostensive reason for us doing this. Yeah process um uh, we've already covered her emerging from the tardis and establishing that a room with some things in it is not dangerous <laughs> what else i mean i a costume change is great i love her in the uh um in that uh, evening uh in, in drag. Her, you know white 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 tie that's yeah mm-hmm. that's 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 an awesome outfit for her mm-hmm. less keen on the dress mm-hmm. and apparently she was less keen on as well because apparently it was very according to the info text it was very uh, the stays were very stiff, and she couldn't sit down. Uh, the corset? The corset, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. The corset stays. Anyway. Interesting. This is one of the problems of watching the cut scenes or the... Uh, scene. Oh, did you watch all the cut I scenes? I watched the cut watch. scenes, and they showed her the corset, and I don't know if that was part of the uh, broadcast version or the outtakes. Oh, right, but she, right. Uh, Aldred gives kind of a grimace when she sees that. She goes, <laughs> the, uh, the day help, Mrs. Gross, who comes in, 
had laid out her clothes and says, and Ace goes, oh, okay, doctor, just this once. And she is about to change. And then uh, Miss Gross shows her the corset and going, hmm. <laughs> mm. I mean, what, what do we feel about the whole white kids that, you know, were mean and, and stuff? And I, th- I burnt the house down and you're not my probation officer and all that kind of stuff. It fits well within Cartmill's uh, characterization that they're working and Briggs's characterization that they're working for Ace, where it's let down is, don't we just see white kids in survival? Do we see any non-white Britons yeah. in survival. So yeah. I would have liked to see Ace's friend in survival. I would have liked to see a little bit of the diversity that Ace hung out with in yeah. survival. I I would have loved, uh, and again, you know, this is all to do with, with money, I suppose, at this point. I would just loved, again, it's even just like a kind of flashback of mm. it would be the gr- I actually think it'd be really good to actually have a flash an, an ace flashback you know and this have would her actually... this would have been the perfect one to have it yeah. in this and dragonfire you'd have a flashback in dragonfire yeah you have a flashback here because they they kind of do a flashback when she gets separated from the doctor and all the birds are going yeah and with the the, the police lights are going right yeah if you would have had a couple flashbacks in her of her um, burning down the house in 1983 a hundred years later and yeah and just with her friend and i think it would have added more to it but probably time and budget would not yeah. allow anything like that because unfortunately i mean it is it's quite an intense and quite a complex backstory and to just have sophie aldridge shout it at us right doesn't make it as convincing as it should be mm-hmm. uh, because it should be convincing and i think it would have been more convincing as it rather than just her yelling it at us mm-hmm. um just you know just a couple of minutes of her actually doing it right uh, in, in the spirit of show don't tell right. um would have been good i think mm-hmm. but you know again it's money it's money yeah they could have one they could have had fewer husks <laughs> and more flashbacks yeah just like when she ran away from the doctor when he was trying to get what happened to her and right. she could have run out of the Victorian scene into the scene where what actually was happening to her at the time. And that would have been a really good cut. And again, I'm guessing time and money. And I think it would have really really brought out the idea that this house is kind of, you know, bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a feels haunted and evil. And Mm -hmm. that's why one of the reasons why she burnt it down. Yeah. Um, And now she, now she feels let me now she feels, more calm about it. I mean, that would, would have been a nice, um, you know, what's the word? Uh, you know, timey-wimey element yeah. to it. Which I guess, I, why I guess this feels, this still feels kind of moffety mm-hmm. to me, you know, is there is a kind of timey-wimey element to this, yeah. which is nice. Yeah, yeah. I think it certainly could be improved upon with a retelling, but I don't think you could do it with any other companion than Ace. No. Have you, you, have, you haven't read the book, have you? Because I haven't. No, no. No, because I mean, I, and I should actually, because if Pratt, um, Pratt wrote it, Platt. um, Platt, so I keep calling him Pratt. His <laughs> name is Platt. His name is Mark Platt. Um, yeah, novelized services here are written by Mark Platt. Yeah. So, um, oh, and the audiobooks read by Ian Hogg. That would be cool. Interesting. Yeah. Um, big call out again. We have Mark Ayers doing the soundtrack. And oh, it, lovely Mark Ayers. Yes. It is another wonderful scoring. Uh, The only place I think where it it doesn't do service to it is when Mrs. Gross is speaking, uh, actress Brenda Kempner 
the soundtrack always seems to overplay uh, what she's trying to say. I have a really hard time hearing when she is speaking and the soundtrack's going, so I turned on the closed captioning for that. Right, right, right. Um, no, no, the, uh, yes, the soundtrack's great. I mean, Marquez does an amazing mm-hmm. job as usual. Well done, Mark. And uh, interesting uh, combination of contemporary Victorian song with Gwendolyn at the piano playing That's the Way to the Zoo, which is, uh, I guess, a... A uh, parody song of evolution, so I'm sure Platt put it in there to parody it, and um... yeah, so yeah, no, that was very nice. You know, Victorian piano playing mm-hmm. uh, worked well. But again, according to the Invitest, I think Platt wanted a lot more kind of Vic- wanted a soundtrack that was more Victorian, mm-hmm. um, uh, but obviously, you know, they could only work with the squeaky squonky sounds of the Radiophonic Workshop. Um, however, I given that. Uh, I, I mean, I, yes, Mar- Marquez becomes more and more of a hero to me the more mm-hmm. more and more I think about him. <laughs> uh, call out to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in there? I was just about to say, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, call out to um, uh, Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, Earthmen never invite their ancestors around to dinner. <laughs> you know, and jokes like Primordial Soup and stuff, mm-hmm. again, are kind of absolute Douglas Adams. I mean, I think, you know, nerds of our generation, which is the same as... Um, Mark Platts. I mean, Douglas Adams is such a touchstone for everything, basically. Right. Um, yeah. Well, former script editor, former writer for Doctor Who, um, uh, yep. amazing success as a uh, sci-fi comic writer in uh, the UK, highly influential. There's no doubt in my mind that Platt had read, read or seen works by Douglas Adams or, or even of listened course. to the original Hitchhikers on the radio. I think everyone did. I, I know I know. I certainly did in the late 1970s and early 1980s. You know, as I said, this story grows on me, and it's not a sense of frustration. It's just I wish it was more than it actually is. It seems like hmm. it's such a rich piece of work, and Ace is such an interesting character that this story could have been developed a lot more by, like you said, giving Ace a flashback, maybe bringing Nimrod on as a companion, or even giving Nimrod a flashback. Those types of things are just trying to explain more like the household dynamic or what a flashback to what happened with Gwendolyn and to have her yep. uh, uh, separate from her mother who became like the, yeah. the chief maid. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be marvelous to see Nimrod with his tribe? I mean, that would be so lovely because he's such a such a beautifully mm-hmm. written character. You know, you don't really get Neanderthals written that well usually, and yeah, he's he's just great, just a, such a great character. And the actor who plays him, uh, Carl Forgione, mm-hmm. his, his his body acting, his character acting, with just kind of the closed, hunched. Uh, shoulders and then the very straight arms when he's walking inwards it does give a neanderthal gait or it it does suggest uh non-homo sapien type uh, conveyance and i like the bits where the doctor is interacting with nimrod i do wonder though does this doctor does the seventh doctor always carry uh the tooth of a (laughs) saber tiger or saber tooth tiger in his pocket to (laughs) i'm good i'm good with that i mean you know it's yo-yos jelly babies sonic screwdrivers batman cars Mm -hmm. you know i think it's established the doctor's got it whatever in his has got whatever he needs Mm -hmm. in his pocket at any particular time um, I see that Carl Forgione was also in Planet of the Spiders. Was he? No. Yeah. What did he play? Uh, they don't 
Sadly, Wikipedia is not going to tell me that. Um, it's just going to say that he was in Planet of the Spiders. He's also dead, which is sad. He died age 54, which sounds very young to die. Yeah, indeed it is. Since I'm only 52. <laughs> Never mind. There you go. <laughs> Oops. Well, just giving away my age. Uh, well, you haven't. Uh... Podcast fans. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah. right. Anything else about ghost? <laughs> else about ghost light? It's a short. It's a short story. Do you think it would have? Short, do you? Th- uh, I mean, well, I mean, I think like we were saying about um, that other one. We were saying this about um, three episodes is too short, mm-hmm. and that's really evidenced by the amount of cut material. Again, the the info text is quite boring, and in its insistence in telling me at every second how much was cut out, both in terms of the script. And then at the script editing stage, and then at the filming stage, and there's a whole bunch of stuff on the DVD, as you've just said, you know, which is which is uh, cut out. Uh, and, uh, and of course, I understand we you, you can't do a re, uh, you can't do a director's cut um, because it's all time stamped. Um, I wonder so you could probably paint I that out now if you really wanted to. If I there's money, I think there. you probably could. And I I think it needs. To, I think it would be great to have another episode. Hmm. Um, I'm not entirely convinced the director's cut would work because, again, I think for for my full enjoyment, you know, they need to have some exterior shots and maybe some flashbacks. But I think it'd be great to see whether that that extra material could be reintegrated. Well, I think a lot of that extra material is on the DVD, and I'm not sure it really adds that much, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah, I'm mm. not sure there's going to be enough there to make an explanation. Like next next week with Fenric, yes. I plan on watching the expanded version because in that Ooh. case it does add significantly to the understanding and the pacing of the story. Yeah, I, okay, well, I'd, I'd be watching broadcast versions, but I will watch the full version of mm, Fenric okay. because... Um, I can't. I, I know I've watched both. Mm-hmm. I know. I again. I watched the actual Fenric, you know, sporadically at the time. Right. Um. I was mainly watching it for like sheer amazement that it had Nicholas Parsons in it. <laughs> um. More of that next week. Right. But yeah, let's um let's watch the let's watch the expanded version. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Fenric. Ooh. Chess. I played chess with you, Time Lord, since the beginning of time. You've never heard of me before, <laughs> but here I am. We get the payoff for the uh, chess game in Silver Nemesis, I think, with this. Yeah, and we were waiting for that mm-hmm. payoff with bated breath. That plot point was put in a whole season. Season whole before. Season ago. It's a, it's a, it's a, what an arc. What an arc. The chess arc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's yeah, it's it's a little it's a little bit of a yeah, a little bit of a Moffat style crack there. It's like and here's the thing and here it is again a lot later. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Looks do you see what I did there? Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. 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 <laughs> Funny. Um yeah, I and I'm 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 looking I'm looking forward to, to watch I haven't watched Fenric for a while, so um uh, and I know I know it's a firm favorite of yours. Yeah, so, I think um, it's I think it is the best of the McCoy era. Ooh, high praise indeed. It's for for a fan of the Hinchcliffe era, I I see this as the most uh, akin to a Hinchcliffe horror type right, story. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Ghost Light is close. It Ghost Light is, is close. It's but it lacks a lot of the plotting. I think. What's the house in um, Pyramids of Mars called? Do is it named? I can't remember. Uh, Mick Jagger's house, I believe. <laughs> so, well, its real name is Stargroves. Yeah. Um, but um, it it is it. it we well, again we can we can cover this next week, but it does have that that Hinchcliffe mm-hmm. feel to it, certainly. Yeah. So I'm 
I'm good. I don't think I have more to say on this. I, I like it. I think it leaves me wanting more. I don't think it's as complicated as people uh, have made it out to be. It's a yeah. it's a little roughly edited, a little heavy-handed uh, cuts made to the script. There are interesting bits in it. I think overall, though, it has an interesting story to tell. It, yeah. Mm, if you're looking for an explanation for evolution, this is not the one to get, though. No, and it's to be honest, if you're getting your science <laughs> from Doctor Who, then you probably deserve the explanation that you get. Right. Uh, but no, it's it it is it, it is actually it's 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 one of the failings. It's one of mm-hmm. is it a failing? Because it makes it more fun. It makes it more fun that evolution is what the the people who didn't like evolution, the Victorian era, thought evolution mm-hmm. was. That's that's a fun version of evolution. Mm-hmm. Actually, evolution is kind of boring. Uh, this is the kind of fun one. So it, it, it maybe it's maybe it's actually it's in keeping with Doctor Who in general, which is more about having fun with stuff mm. than kind of being you know being all bid mead about everything and being kind of it's not accurately not accurate science. Rrr. For an ace story, I think it's really a good ace story. For a yeah, seventh is. Doctor yep. story, I think it cast him in a really negative light as. Uh, uh, manipulating and bringing Ace back to this haunted house that she yeah. did not want to. So we had, we had clowns, uh, <laughs> clowns at the end of season twenty-five, and now yeah. a, a second story into uh, season twenty-six, where you have the Doctor again forcing Ace to confront something from her past that she does not want to deal with. Yeah. Which I mean, this one is more convincing. I think I already my made my feelings known about Ace's fear of clowns, <laughs> um, which is you know it's not the most crippling phobia to have if you want to be an interstellar time agent of some kind. Right. However, having some kind of childhood trauma that's about burning a house down, yes, mm-hmm. more more needful to address that than the fear of clowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to be to be honest, if he's planning for her to be you know a kind of a time lady of some kind, things like a fear of spiders would be more. <laughs> Uh, or aliens you mm-hmm. know things with tentacles i think would be would be something better to, to conquer a, a, a better fear to conquer a healthy respect for radiation though is good to cultivate in any time traveler exactly as uh, yes. as the uh, david tennant doctor would t- testify absolutely and i think absolutely. did pertwee pertwee's doctor die partially due to the radiation coming from he the did. great one the great one from radiation poisoning yeah. from the horn, from the, the from the crystals. So, yeah, I would have liked to see that uh, tied in a little better. And um, I think by not having the sonic screwdriver in this, uh, we don't have in like series eleven and series ten, and basically all the modern Who, where the Doctor is using the sonic screwdriver as the Swiss utility magic wand. We have a per- yep. purpose yep. built tool for a Geiger counter, a Gallifreyan Geiger counter to detect radiation. And I find it, uh, if this was filmed now, this would have been another ability of the sonic. Exactly. But then of course he very cleverly can use the Geiger counter as like something that looks like a gun, <laughs> um, which is absolute kind of, you know, doctor, uh, good doctor behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so which is which works really well, and that al- it works very well. Actually, it yeah. allows allows a little bit of creativity with the Doctor and script, and then it also allows the Josiah character, uh, once he sees what he's being held at bay at, says, "I know a Geiger counter when I see one. It's uh, <laughs> you know, it's not a gun, so it it works. Yeah, I think it works. Uh, it has a double purpose. It, it establishes 
the doctor trying to bluff his way through the situation. Ace calling him out saying this isn't a gun. So there's a little bit of character thing. And then he's, again, kind of physically shushing her. And then yep. Josiah is saying, okay, I know what this is. You're, you know, I'm not an idiot here. Yeah. And none of that would have happened with the sonic screwdriver. No, exactly. The quite how Josiah knows that it's a Geiger counter is a question that comes to my mind. Well, you have to give him a little bit of credit because he is, when he says that, he is in the control room of a alien spacecraft. He might know a little bit more than what the average Victorian does. Yeah, but would he have called it a Geiger counter? I, uh-huh. He called it a radiation detector. Uh, oh, did he? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, right. no one All calls right. it a Geiger counter except for uh, me, I guess. For us. Yeah. for humans yeah. yeah so yeah hr geiger's special yeah, counter. no yeah. no no it's not it's not referred to a geiger counter at all in the script there you go just a bit i just the internet here the geiger counter was invented by hans geiger and walter muller in what year in um it doesn't say when when did they invent it Oh my God! Oh. Wikipedia, you are. Oh, here you go. About the nineteen thirties, apparently. Okay, so it's a, it would have been a fifty fifty years ahead of time. Exactly. Yeah. Though, hang on. Nineteen oh eight is when Hans Geiger was kind of coming up with the idea at the University of Manchester. Yeah. You know, there's a Doctor so. Who story waiting to happen. Visit Absolutely. Hans Geiger. The invention of the Geiger counter, the indisputable king of the measuring device, <laughs> Doctor Who. Well, very good. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you for listening to episode yeah. 115 of the Metabulous 2. I have been talking with Ben. And I have been talking with David. Right. And until next time, farewell. <laughs>